So, how long we got? Where's our destination today? I don't know. We got 20 miles to cover. Let's talk some movies. People don't know how to drive. Are we going to get lunch on this gig? You see anything good recently? Not really. Right, we got a little time, Steve. Let's do a podcast. Sounds good. So, hey, everybody. This is Film Driven. We're back. Yes, we are, Steve. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskin, and uh, we're taking a drive. We have a special guest in the car. Exciting. Our very first guest Our ever. First guest. Uh, Steve, it's, it's very cool. Uh, we got... Local Chicago filmmaking legend, Mr. D.P. Carlson, in the car with us. That's right. Dave, how are you today? I'm doing great. You know, I'm, I, I thought, I always thought you guys did this like at a studio with like a green screen, like an old Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, you're actually no. in, I'm actually in a car. You. Now, the actual tinny sound of the audio you're getting is from an authentic in-car experience. That's right. That's <laughs> we right. don't add it in in post. That's right. You know, I have to, can I jump in real quick? The, um... I'm so glad you picked me up in Northbrook because, you know, I actually lived here as a kid and, and the first movie I ever made was, was when I lived in Northbrook. The first scene I ever directed was, was uh, I, I took a fly and I put it on my nose in front of an, an old Super 8 camera and I smacked the, my face and killed the fly. It was called The Fly. The Fly. Wow. The Fly. The, not the original fly, but, no. uh, but you're, that's, that's pretty cool. How the old basis of the Cronenberg. I think I was about eight, eight years old. Oh my God, wow. man! You started you started much earlier than I. But yeah. you know, Steve and I for a long time wanted to talk about documentary films. Uh, we both enjoy documentaries, uh, and uh, we've never done an episode on documentaries. Sometimes we'll talk about them in the process of other stuff. It occurred to me, it just so happens that uh, Mr. Carlson here has a film coming out uh, very, very shortly uh, called Joe Frank Somewhere Out There. Steve and I had the pleasure of working on the film, and it's been a long time in the making. And, uh, well, tell us about it. Well, Joe Frank, if you don't know, was sort of this national public radio legend for uh, nearly 40 years. He did all these original one-hour, half-hour shows uh, where he, what I describe as sometimes tripped out philosophical monologues about the human condition, but he'd wrap around some other original sort of storytelling using actors uh, at times. And uh, he started his career in New York in the late 70s and uh, eventually ended up at KCRW in Los Angeles uh, and did a, a huge amount of work there. Um, what did he do? Like, kind of, if, if somebody's never heard Joe Frank, what, what do you mean by stories? What, what kind of things did he do? Well, he was, you know, I think he would have an, a general idea of, of some subject or some topic or some historical thing that he wanted to maybe focus on, and he'd he'd brainstorm it out. He'd sort of write these stories or write these monologues. Um, sometimes they were very autobiographical, and sometimes they weren't. He, he'd uh, he did a lot of stuff on the phone where he'd interview lots of people and and transcribe these types of interviews to create these sort of these shows that were usually about a couple different topics. But but he did a lot of different things over his career. So. As Alexander Payne says in my movie, you know, when you try to explain Joe Frank, I just say, listen to Joe Frank, because there's so many different ways to access his work and to sort of describe it in one nutshell is, uh, doesn't always do it justice. Well, let's just listen to the trailer of the film. I've drunk gallons of Chablis. That's the Samba. I've sat outside the casino in Monte Carlo in the hours between closing time and dawn to listen to the shots of suicides 
Joe Frank is what radio in its wildest dreams wishes it could be. Ballsy, intelligent, thoughtful, dangerous. When I recommend Joe Frank to others, I can't describe him to others. All I can say is just listen. Sometimes I feel I don't really exist, that I'm a character in someone else's novel, and that he, sitting at his desk and grappling with the material of my story, is only a character in yet another person's novel. My first paid job in radio was as Joe's production assistant. And Joe was sitting behind the microphone in the studio and I was in the control room. It was like somebody doing some sort of weird magic trick. I work hard at my job. And I hope that by my efforts rendered faithfully over a period of years, I'll move up through the corporate hierarchy to a position of security, power, and prestige. He became kind of a celebrity in Los Angeles pretty fast because a lot of very hit people started buying the shows. It was funny because men wanted to be him and women wanted to be with him. People were thrilled to meet Joe. For years, I'd run into somebody and they'd say, what are you doing? I'd say, well, I've been doing some stuff for Joe Frank, and they would be so jealous. You can beat on the door of God, howl at the top of your voice. You can pray, sing cantatas, compose motets, burn incense, perform passion plays. And he is so singular and amazing and good at what he does and the body of work he's created is phenomenal. I had to be like a babysitter for him because he would go hours and hours of editing. The phone is a very intimate medium. It's like literature in the sense that words themselves spur the imagination. I'm so mad at myself because I get so obsessed, you know. I kind of started getting the hint that he might be recording me. He called me and said that he had been, in fact, recording me for months. You mean how it came to be that he coerced me into revealing my life to my great destruction? I don't remember, but I know that I jumped on it like a tuna on a hook. I have something going on inside me, and I think that all affected the way my radio programs developed. In a way, the absurdity came from the life I was leading. There was a certain craziness about what was going on when I was young. You know, the stuff that people go through, the darkest thoughts you have, and the level of pain that it takes to just be alive, that's the kind of thing that he is the sort of spokesman for. You know, it's intense. It's like he lives on a razor's edge. There was nothing like, really, what he did. He just forged a new genre, his own. Yeah, it's, he, he is an interesting character because uh, it is actually hard to wrap, kind of wrap your head around what Joe does. Because part of what Joe does is straight, straight up writing. Like, a lot of his stuff is just brilliantly, tightly constructed monologues. But, but monologues sometimes make it seem almost like right. almost limits it. Yeah, because, right. I mean, it's, it's musings, it's routines, it's rants. But again, very, very tightly constructed. But the other aspect of what he does is the recording side of things, right? So, so he takes these monologues, recites them. Uh, he was born with a 
beautiful speaking voice. So there's the, the first thing that strikes you about him, I think, is that voice. And uh, people say that in the in the documentary, right, Dave? Yeah, well, to your point, it's like his shows were highly produced. I mean, they had not only, besides his voice, they had looped music, oh, and yeah. drones. And so he created this sort of uh, sensory environment that made it, you know, very palatable and, and engaging for people who are listeners. You, once you sort of listened and sunk into his world, you were sort of stuck there. And it's actually kind of cool we're in a car talking about him because everybody's got the Joe Frank car story. Right. Like, I'm listening to Joe Frank on the car and I got to my destination, you know, and I couldn't get out of the car. You know, I had to like finish the show before I got out because right. the stuff gets, you know, gets you so locked in, you want to see how it ends. Back when it was on the radio and you couldn't pause it, like right, right. now we could pause anything, and <laughs> but, but back back then that was a unique experience. Well, it's the old anal analog life, you know. That's right. But I think for me in Chicago, where I first discovered him was in the late 80s listening to um, WBEZ. Uh, on Sunday nights, they always had um, Ken Nordine's Word Jazz, and then I think Joe followed him. So that was like 11 and 12 at night. So we were always listening to him <laughs> yeah. late at night. And that, that was sort of how I discovered him and uh, became a fan first. That's why a lot of his writing style, like it, it seems like a guy, even if the topic isn't necessarily about crime or anything, that Joe would seem like a voice who, who knew about dark things kind of whispering in your ear and uh, so something about driving around at night listening to Joe with the music playing there's definitely a noirish vibe to a lot of it yep. but also like as you said it, that doesn't totally encompass like everything there is going on parts of it were really funny but yeah it inhabits a very strange interesting world which is why you know he got his hooks into so many listeners including you right yeah I mean he has over 200 plus radio shows you know I think it was 230 ish or something and I listened to all of them, you know, when I was starting the production and tried to familiarize myself with everything in his in his canon, so to speak. And uh, for the film, you know, I had to sort of pick and extract certain parts throughout that whole career to sort of um, either complement some of the narrative or, like we were saying, show how diverse he could be with some of the different genres he was playing in, in his shows. Yeah, he's, uh, he's very diverse in his subject matters, but he is... Uh, the production thing is kind of what brings it all together, you know. I mean, ultimately, the sound of his voice, the way his voice is compressed, the way it's it sounds coming through on those shows. One of the things that's interesting about Joe is his sort of sound design, and uh, that's one of the things we talk a lot about in the film. The drone is an important aspect in Joe's sound. I loved it when the music would stop and the drone would come up, like a big, like this sort of strange foghorn. It's full of harmonics. They're really complex. He used to put them together with lots of different sounds. They add a sort of a, a strange dither. Joe used to use two types of drones. One is a synthesizer pad consisting of three or four notes. And then we have this human choir, like ah or ooh, on the eight-track machine. That gave us a flexibility of choosing either one note on the drone or two notes on the drone or the fourth voice on the choir. Bam, people are locked in. Joe Frank's music, be it a drone or a loop, induces the listener into a type of trance. All of that together somehow lulls the listener into an, an oniric state, a, a, a dreamlike state to receive that narrative directly into the center of the brain. When he was, when he started doing this stuff, 
it was it was so friggin' unique and so utterly original that that I, I can totally understand why people have these car stories where they're driving around and they hear this thing coming through the radio. It sounds like nothing else. It talks about subjects that nobody else talks about. Right. It talks about them sometimes in hilarious ways and sometimes in ways that are not that hilarious. But I will say there's always a, a good good amount of humor in, in everything that Joe does, even when it's super dark. Uh, but uh, it, the, the uniqueness of it, the originality of it, is kind of hard to underline because um, he's influenced so many people. Now, I think you hear the Joe Frank effect without realizing the Joe Frank effect and so much other stuff. Why? Music, radio, uh, advertising, it's crazy. Well, advertising is important because when people ask me what I'm working on and I go, I'm doing this thing on Joe Frank, <clears throat> half the people get it, half the people go, who? And I have to give them a quick one line about, you know, what he's like. And I, I always compare it to the Dos Equis, you know, most interesting man in the world. Because <laughs> when that first popped, I was going, oh, this is Joe Frank's An Enterprising Man, which is a different, which is a show Joe did about a guy of great wealth and stature or whatever and all the different uh, things he did in his life. And uh -huh. it's this listing and there's a drone and, and Joe would occasionally have these Eastern European voices uh, like this guy. And, right. and I felt, to my mind, I'm, that it was a total ripoff of, of Joe Frank's type work. But when I mentioned that stylistically, <laughs> that commercial, people, people get it. Go, they get it real quick. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and, and it is, I mean, ripoff, homage, whatever. I mean, I, I, call it what you will. Right. That ad campaign was actually pretty, pretty successful everybody seems to know it and love it and yeah i i think it's undoubtable that that uh they were let's see highly influenced by joe <laughs> but other stuff as well i mean i i hear like in even in popular music you hear sometimes you know and th these things go in and out of fashion but you know you get these t you know story songs sometimes you'll hear you know like john cale do something like that or you'll hear uh, uh you know tinder sticks do it a lot too straight up joe frank stuff they'll have a drone where they're telling a tightly written narrative right. and it's processed and it has ebbs and flows and the music kicks in during dramatic parts fades out and you know even right there you're feeling it and artists that are not even american you know so so i think his influence really is not to be you know understated <laughs> in any way i mean he is a, an amazing artist and uh, how long were you working on the on the film well, well this film years? this film for me it's I, I i met him earlier than 2010 but that's when i first started this production because um he had gone through Steppenwolf to do a live show and I uh, kind of reintroduced myself to him and, and he allowed me to film that. So were you working on that one? I was. I yeah. was with you on that one. Yeah. Steve, I don't know if Steve... No, you're, no, I did a later one. Okay, later one. Anyway, so yeah, so yeah, well, prior prior to the Steppenwolf thing, he was, he was getting a, a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Third Coast Audio Festival at the Art Institute and I had gotten his permission to film him and... Uh, Out did... So you didn't have any relationship? How did you get in touch with them initially? Oh, I just, you know, I can't remember how. I just, like, tracked down Joe Frank, maybe through his website or something, and uh, talked to his um, the woman who ended up being his wife, Michael Story, who has allowed me to come and film him. So, so you just approached, you just said, hey, I'm a fan, I'm a Chicago filmmaker, and I know you're going to be in town. I'd like to shoot this. Yeah, I mean, there's no magic to it. I mean, I've, I, have a, I have a history. Like, when I did the Chicago Filmmakers on the Chicago River movie, I had 20-some-odd film directors from... 
you know, Chicago or who are now in LA and um, That's right. I just, Pre-major directors, Steve. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, oh, I, yeah, no, I'm not I'm not uh No, but I would just sailing Dave's qualifications here. I'm just <laughs> God curious damn it, how Steve. he got in touch with you. No, I, I think you know, I I've never been afraid of of asking people to do stuff, yeah. you know, uh, and I'm always amazed. I mean, even go back to this film that I'm referencing with the Chicago film directors, it's like I can remember uh, you know, you, you leave a message with John Landis, right? And I'm sitting around drinking beers watching a Michael Jordan game and uh, with my buddies backslapping, and all of a sudden I get a call and it says John Landis. It's like, holy shit, you know, or Harold Ramis or Haskell Wexler or, and a lot of it's timing, you know, you figure out when people are around and then you, you know, sort of position yourself to make yourself available to be there and, you know, and, and then uh, before you know it, you've got the stuff in the can and uh, you're off and running. Yeah, that's 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 really cool, and and you know Joe is uh, is a little bit of a tough nut to crack, you know. Like I, it, I obviously I, I've seen the film, and I, I I've met Joe a few times, and you know he he didn't seem he he seemed to have a little bit of a trepidation about celebrity, like his own status, you know. Like somebody said once, like in many ways he was his own worst enemy from a career perspective. I think that's maybe two different things because I think he 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 made of not achieved all the things he wanted to do um, or allowed himself to get into projects that maybe he didn't have full control over or whatever. But but I think the other part of it is I think he did want to maybe have celebrity or or be larger than he was, you know, or well, more well-known um, to people out there. So, um, But I, I have to tell you, I mean, the first time I interviewed him, um, and you weren't there, Andre, it was another shooter, but, you know, we were talking for 30 minutes about stuff and I said well, you know we were rolling I said what do you think about all this film stuff you know let's get you talking about that and he, and he turned to me and he goes oh, I wish you know I wish I never would have let you into my life you know <laughs> I don't know you I don't know and he went on a Joe Frank rant you went on a Joe Frank and I was like I had a drone in my head going like this is not going to go well and it didn't you know but it was, he was like very critical about I don't know about me but just like the ambiguity of it and part of what he was telling me was like I don't know you you know and I don't I, I don't know if I can trust you is maybe the subtext and you know, he actually said it, didn't he? Yeah, it used to be in the film. It used great, to be in the film. I remember film. it used to be prominently yeah, in the film. It yeah. didn't it didn't make it. It was, it was a different type of a film when it was right, more right. about the self-reflexive process, which, yeah. quite frankly, I enjoyed quite a bit of. But yeah. Joe had final cut. So anyway. <laughs> the bonus features. The bo- Well, yeah. Anyway, so the point is um, I turned off the camera and I said, well, let me tell you. I said, I'm married. You know, I got two kids. Started making movies when I was eight. You know, I did this, I did that, I made these films, I made that films, I used to be a grave digger, you know, uh, da, 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 all this shit, you know, and he's like, oh, okay, interesting, you know, and, and then we were off and back at it, but the point was, you know, he never bothered to ask me who I was. I'd known him for a, a year in the production, I'd known him for a few years before that when I made this other, you know, production with him, and it's like, he never even bothered to ask me about my life, so it's <laughs> like, he did sort of live in his own world, in his own headspace to some extent, yeah. and uh, as much as I could take the flack, you know, I've, you guys know this. I've, I've interviewed thousands of people in my life. You know, some of them celebrities, some of them not. But, you know, I, I once did an interview with Joe Walsh for a blues documentary, and this was like pre-Joe Walsh cleaning up his act and right. going back into the Eagles. This I'm was giggling because like, I know the story. You've seen the footage, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's the, 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 the interview started with him insisting a prostitute or, pardon me, a, a, what do you call it? Person? Lady of the evening? A lady of the evening. Or, uh... <laughs> I think prostitute's a legit term. No, what are the ones we just call Sex up a... worker? <laughs> no, uh... what's the one we just call up a woman and... Uh... Like an escort? Escort, yeah, she was an escort, sorry. And uh, he insisted... A he... friend. Yeah, <laughs> insisted that she be in the shot. So I was, I was young and dumb. <laughs> So I said, sure, two, <laughs> two shot. And, uh, and she got so embarrassed in the first you right. know, minute of ter- horrible filmmaking that uh, she left. And then I had Joe 
and his worst. in the shot. <laughs> yeah, anyway, the point is, I've always said, you know, nobody is as bad as Joe Walsh. Like, that was my bad experience forever. <laughs> and so... Low watermark. So even when I'm dealing with, you know, uh, Joe Frank, who's an intimidating personality, I, I never really let him get under my skin. I mean, he might get under my skin to some extent, but in terms of... He never insists on having an escort as part of the show. Uh, no, no. No, I wouldn't be part of it. But the point was, it was just like, you know, uh, it was intimidating, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I've been there before with people. Yeah, I mean, I personally found him, I found him intellectually intimidating because, you know, oh, yeah. Joe... You you know with most celebrities you're you're just kind of scratching the surface you know oh they're nice they're not nice they're friendly they're in a good mood they're in a bad mood. That, that's basically it but with Joe you're instantly struck by the giant intellect that's sitting in front of you and that he he will not let any bullshit go you gotta oh, be yeah. you gotta be a, like, like the only reason you got to where you got with Joe Frank I think is because. He sensed your integrity, and he sensed your passion, and he sensed your respect for his material. And I think that's that. You know, ultimately, that's probably why you you got to do the film when others did not. You know. Well, I would like to think that. I don't know if that's true. I mean, there was a. It's point, true. Come on. There was a point where he would, you know, he'd correct my dialogue. You know, my language. You know, and I'm, I'd I'd be doing my best best Dennis Franz from Chicago because that's where I am, and he'd be like, yeah, I can see him cringe. <laughs> and at one point, I sent him like a gift in the mail of the book of slang. I'm like, see, see? And he actually got a kick out of it. I know he, he told me he liked it, but uh, it's legit. You can, you can say stuff, you know? Yeah. Doesn't sound like an English teacher, which he was. You know? That's right, that's right. Documentaries are very structurally based, you know, like structure is really the key to most documentaries. The difference between a good one and a bad one is that the good one has a very defined structure. Sure. But the other aspect of what makes documentaries often great is the personalities involved. And uh, the Joe Frank, the individual, he's an interesting guy, right? He's had a fascinating life. He's, a, he's an immigrant. He came here as a child he, from a family of Holocaust survivors who were also extremely wealthy, and there was all this family drama going on. It, it, talk about that a little bit. Like, that, that, guy, that guy was quite a persona. All those things you mentioned are true that make him very dramatic, but he also had a lot of health problems throughout his whole life. Yeah. And uh, for me, when I was structuring the film and listening to those 200-plus shows, I mean, the cool thing was is a lot of his stuff is autobiographical. So I could interview Andre and have you tell me about Joe Frank, or I could talk to Joe and he can tell me about Joe Frank. But when you use Joe's shows talking about Joe Frank, it's much more interesting. And, and a lot of the narrative in my film is driven by just going back into his stuff and, and finding it. You know, it's 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 like having, you know, an author read his own book, so to speak, kind of, but or own autobiography. But, but uh, the thing about Joe is and, and this, we talk about this in the film, is you never quite know what's true or not true about him and his life and the type of person he is. You know. The, Did you have a, anybody else helping you with, like, kind of the research aspects of it? Like, going through, even just going through the shows, but it's all you, huh? No, I mean, I just, I got the whole library and I just got into it. But I'd, yeah. I'd been a fan first, so I knew a little bit about the, the types of shows he was doing and the types of people he was working with on the shows. And so... Uh, when the Rolodex started spinning and the film was, was moving along, I was getting access to all the people that were a part of his life, and I think a lot of them were anxious to talk about him. You initially approached Joe himself about the project, and once you got Joe on board, then did you kind of present Joe with, like, somewhat of a wish list? Like, what was your, uh, the well, first, first round of interviews other than Joe? How did you approach that? Well, I think, must have been out in Los Angeles, I think we went out there this cameraman Brad Sellers who was a 
guy I met in Chicago years ago who now is based up in the Pacific Northwest. He had met me down in L.A. and we did um, one of his live shows and then interviewed. I remember we were going to go interview Joe and he wasn't feeling well because he's always had in and out of the hospital he kind of like health issues and he Mm -hmm. has good days and bad days so as a filmmaker too and this is part of the process of the film also you have to be patient about you know when you pick your times to to work with him so anyway we were he called us at the hotel and said you know know, I could tell something was not clicking right and he he wasn't going to have us over and I started feeling like oh no this this phone call is going to suck so I actually recorded the phone call he called he called us to sort of postpone the interview and uh, I remember we were like one sentence into the conversation and he said, are you recording me? And I said, yeah. And he said, good. And so uh, we got a little bit of voice over there about stuff. Anyway, the next day we went there and we shot him and it was great and it was a fine interview and all that stuff. And I think in that first wave, we did people like uh, Mike Malone, a writer who's in uh, Los Angeles who helped sort of contribute to some Joe Frank stuff um, out in Los Angeles, um, trying to think who else. Well, did Joe put you in touch with these guys? Like, was he like, yeah, Joan, you should, you should wife, talk to Mike? Or? Joe and his wife, yeah, yeah he okay. had a general idea who, who the canon of people were, you know, um, who were all part of his, his world. Yeah, I did some stuff at KCRW. I went to KCRW a couple times. We interviewed Jennifer Farrow, who's now the general manager of KCRW. She used to work with Joe and sort of transcribe his interviews. Um, so she knew him from an early part of his career, so to speak. And then, uh, so people like that. And then there were a lot of people still on the East Coast who worked with Joe back in the New York days in the 70s and 80s, like Arthur Miller, David Rapkin, Lester Navsker, people like that. So, um, and then as we went back to L.A. with Andre, I remember we did David Cross, mm-hmm. right? Um, Joe for the second time. Uh, Ariana Morgenstern. That's right. Uh, Ed Valfrey we did, and uh, and and his engineer. Oh, oh Theo Mandel. Theo. Yeah, he was awesome. Yeah, so, uh, but to, your, to the point I said before, everybody was dying to talk about him. Another person we interviewed in Los Angeles the first time was Grace Zabriskie. You know, she was, um, you know, an actress, been in a lot of David Lynch films Still, and stuff like fantastic. that. Yeah, she does a lot of great stuff. She's on Twin Peaks. She's got great stuff on there. Yeah, she's, you know, she worked with Joe, Ryan Catrona, um, I, I keep forgetting when I was there shooting with uh, Brad. Brad left town, and I was there for a couple days shooting on my own. And, yes. Uh, so it all gets kind of mashed together. But um, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm curious what you guys thought of it because I know Steve, you worked uh, when we did Alexander Payne in Chicago. What do you remember about that day? Well, as uh, you know, I helped you out on this interview, Alexander Payne was in town for I think he was presenting an award to Reese Witherspoon or something, and he was also scouting locations for his film Nebraska. And, uh, but he agreed to come in, and you could just tell that he was as big a fan of Joe Frank as anybody, that he was just excited. But, you know, he loved Joe Frank. He wanted to talk about it. And the other main thing I saw that was kind of cool just specifically about that experience was when he walked in, you showed him some some segments of the film that had already been assembled. You know, the film wasn't done yet, but you had to, a couple sections. So you could show him to give him the vibe of what was going on. And uh, not only did he really like it, but he would... You know, he didn't talk to us as any sort of like big shot. He was like, "Oh, you're a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker. Let's talk about film and styles and Joe Frank." And but yeah, he was just delighted that, it, like you said, he had the Joe Frank car story of driving around <laughs> and all the you know by sheer chance he stumbled upon a Joe Frank story, and from there was like, "What the hell is this?" Which uh, I find like not just Joe, but that's some of my favorite art I've discovered in my life is the moment you know there are times where you hear about something that's good 
you know, but there are some rare times in your life where like you hear a band or you see a movie or you stumble across something where just out of the blue, you just don't know anything about it, but you're just captivated and you're like, well, what is this? I want to know more about that. And that was certainly Alexander Payne's story about Joe Frank was, who's, who's this guy with his drone music telling me stories, but you know, in an intimate, captivating voice where you're like, I want to know everything this guy says. You know, one thing I wish I would have included in my movie, and I, I thought about this kind of when it was done, was it would have been nice to maybe intro him and reference even somebody like Orson Welles because to your point, there's he's a guy who, when I would listen to, I still listen to his old radio shows. I mean, man, when that son of a gun starts talking, you, you know, he's got me. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's something about the control he had over his voice and his performances that, uh, you know, is timeless and, and profound and, you know, wonderful to listen to and Joe's sort of the same way when he gets going I think um, definitely definitely thought so well for me I don't actually have a Joe Frank car story because I I got turned on to Joe Frank through working on the film with you so when I did that gig at the, at the Art Institute that performance he did he kind of hooked me there and then I started seeking out his stuff and you 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 helped me out in that regard so I kind of caught up with him over the years and I became a fan like that but uh, the whole thing was just fun because we were always uh, we were always talking to interesting people we had a good time in Los Angeles you and I just kind of hanging yeah. out and, and and doing our thing and being filmmakers but the interviewing process was always interesting because he was different things to different people you know right. and and people saw him from all these different angles and uh, he was a complex guy personally you know what stood out to me outside of the you know the celebrity stuff and little technical stuff that you know as a DP I'm always there's, I always have a different set of concerns than, than a director would. You know, a lot of it is very technical. And, you know, I very much remember, like, covering stuff <laughs> in somebody's apartment with the, with the duvetine and, uh, and just having, having struggling with uh, filtration and various other stuff that we were doing. But, uh, but in Joe's apartment, which we spent basically a day there interviewing him and getting B-roll of him, I was struck by the level of physical pain that he was in, at least at that time. And this was, you know, this was what, six, seven years ago that we did those interviews? Uh, yeah, and, something like that. And um, this guy has just been sick his whole life. And, and I think it put him in this state of, you know, being aware of his own mortality so much that it drove him to, to these to, to this level of introspection uh, that he really took to an extremely far degree. You know, a lot of, a lot of us are introspective. Joe made a show out of it. Right. You know, and it was amazing. Well, that, that's what struck me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of his stuff, as they say, it speaks to the human condition. And, um, you know, I think for me, when I listened to him back in the late 80s, I remember it must have been like around the In the Dark series or something. At some point, I remember hearing an announcement like, Joe Frank was on hiatus and the DJ at BEZ was elaborating and saying that he had some cancer diagnosis or something. And I was really taken aback by that. I mean, I must have been in my early 20s or something when I heard that. And uh, I felt like, God, here's this guy who's like, to me, like the voice of God almost, right? And how could he be so vulnerable to have this sort of disease? And I think at that age, I, I hadn't, you know, my, my generation or my parents and all of they hadn't started going through stuff like that. So it wasn't a part of my life. So it was shocking to me to hear, but you hear somebody who was so uh, powerful behind the mic all of a sudden sound like this fragile guy in that context. Mm -hmm. uh, I never forgot it, and, and it's certainly something we talk a lot about in the film. So I want to ask you, Dave, a little bit before we'll get into some more about you know the film and where it's going and stuff, but 
since we're kind of a Chicago-centric podcast, tell me a little bit about Joe Frank's relationship with Chicago, because I know specifically the Steppenwolf Theater, and you met him when he was at the Art Institute. Did Joe have a special relationship with this city? I think he had a special relationship with Chicago because of BEZ. I mean, uh, I've, I've talked with people about this. You know, Joe has you know, three major audiences. The first one is Los Angeles, the second one is Chicago, and the third one is uh, New York. And I think a lot of it is because he did get lots of airplay in Chicago during those times I talked about around Ken Nordine. And, um, and when he came back to do his live, his live shows, and I know he did that one at the Art Institute, and he, he did three in the end at Steppenwolf uh, late in his career, he sold every one of them out. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, I, you know, we interviewed Terry Kinney, one of the founders of Steppenwolf, uh, during the live show I worked on. And Terry Kinney came across as one of those guys who's, he also was a Joe Frank super fan. And his <laughs> right. kind of vibe in the interview was like, I love Joe Frank. I am in a position where I kind of have a theater. Right. So when Joe came, he's like, if you want to come to Chicago, I will make my theater available for you. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and to that point, too, I love when I can, not, especially now, now that the film's finished, I know I love when I when I'm talking about the movie to like a festival programmer or you know some vendor or a lawyer even and and I go Joe Frank and they go oh my god yeah it, it like makes my job so much easier with with because what people I think people who, who like him really want to support him and what he does and that's yeah. what Terry did I mean that's what I did through my you know the whole production I like you said I self-financed the whole thing you know, which is never good advice. But, um, <laughs> and now, of course, I've got this Indiegogo campaign going on in the background because I'm just trying to clear music rights just to, to play it at film festivals. And I'm sure the job will get done, and we've gotten a lot of great people. It's it's probably still up if people want to uh, to help out with the production. There's trailers on there and all that stuff. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I like I said, I came at it as a fan first, so I've invested a lot of my passion into this picture and um, I'm really thrilled that it's out this year it's going to be fun to, it's actually it's going to be fun to see it in front of an audience next week as it, it, the world premieres at the Sonoma International Film Festival I don't, I don't know if I'm dating this broadcast but the point is uh, that's the first time it'll be on the big screen and uh, I'm, I can't wait I looked at the copy I looked at it yesterday on a big screen for the first time I got the, the DCP done and we took it to a theater in Chicago here and ran it and uh, it looked fantastic and sounded awesome. And I guess I, I got excited about it again. You know what I mean? It is yeah, exciting. Yeah. It's, it is exciting. Like, you really are. And you've spent years working on this film. And you put a lot, you, besides the financial investment that you made, which has been enormous, uh, you put a lot of work and, you know, and... and labor into it and uh it's this is always exciting the movie's about to come out and uh you know you see it on that big screen for the first time there's there's really nothing like it I, i'd imagine it's um probably the closest that a man can experience to childbirth to some extent without the physical I was, I was, hopefully not as painful yeah no, 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 no. well you know it's funny it's like you know my company is called film fetus <laughs> and I'll tell you how I got there. It was like years ago when I was at Columbia College, a friend of mine, Dave Gerding, we had real similar interests, and uh, he was interviewing me about some documentary he was doing about me. He said, where do you see yourself in 2001? Because he knew my, the first film I ever saw as a kid was 2001, this space on <laughs> And so I said, oh, you know, world-known or something, some bullshit. The funny thing was is everybody was world-known in 2001 because of the Internet. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> so so it, was, it was no big deal. But the point was it was like, you know, I was talking about fame and all this crap. So I, I coined myself a film fetus flow around the earth like at the end of 2001 so that became that anyway so over the years though film fetus and all the film 
albums I put out, I, I have what are called, you know, the ones that I birth, which are great, and then I have a series of ones that I call abortions. Right. And a lot of them become abortions because of music rights issues or, you know, uh, they got left off a DVD or, you know, um, for whatever reason. So even when I'm making this Joe Frank film over the years, I always have this sort of like, you know, I don't want this to be another one of these abortions because it just, you know, I have too much invested in it. You know, I got I got other things I could have been working on. <laughs> People ask me, what are you going to do next? I'm like, I'm not going to do a documentary and I'm not going to do a film about an artist, you know, because I'm not interested in telling anybody else's life or world and being wrapped up uh -huh. in their shit you know it's like i'm gonna do a fucking comedy and it's gonna be a short film and i'm <laughs> higher I'm, I, I, you know, I remember when i used to not want to pay actors because you know not that i didn't want to pay them but i couldn't believe i was paying a union rate nowadays it's like i'll pay a fucking union rate all day it's like <laughs> you're done sign the contract let's move it along because yeah. i can control it now you right. know what i mean and, right. and I, I don't like getting involved in films where i don't feel like i'm in control anymore you know and uh this one you know thankfully got over that hump and it's coming out and it's going to be great well it's it's it, it is it is great and and you know very proud to be associated with it and uh you should be very proud of it as well but but am i am i hearing that you may your next film may not be a documentary are you uh are you sour on documentary filmmaking at this point well i've made everything you know it's funny i was I think you do get pigeonholed a little bit or stereotyped like into like the types of films you do. I, I do everything. I've of done, course. you know, narratives and shorts and feature length, blah, blah, blah. The yeah. point is, I remember I was sitting in a grant thing one time in Chicago. I was applying for a grant, I think for the Illinois Arts Council or something like that. And you're allowed to go to the review processes where the judges, you know, are looking at all the people's works and they're watching things on screen and then they're deciding whether they're going to give you grant money. And you can announce that I'm Dave Carlson, I'm sitting in the back, or you just sort of sit quietly and you listen, they don't really know who you are. And I did that. And I watched these people evaluate my work because I wanted to understand the process too, besides my application, right? And I watched them show like Homeless 99, a short documentary I did. I saw them watch Chicago Filmmakers in the Chicago River. I saw them watch Sailor Man, which is a narrative film about child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and, and maybe a couple other things that showed what I thought was a nice tapestry of the type of work I did. The first thing, so it's over, and the first thing one of these fucking judges says is like, uh, I don't know, it seems like he's a little scattered. Like, you know, he's not really just doing documentary, but he's also doing, and I thought like, what are you talking about? You know, it's like they didn't understand that a filmmaker can dabble in these different things. I'm not, you know, commenting on what you're asking me, but it's like I'm, I'm happy to, to play around in any of these genres or any of these forms, you know, but, but still people think that, you know, once you're a documentarist, that's what you are. That's all you so, can do. Yeah, that's, that's all, all you, you can, can do. do. Oh. Well, yeah, we have people, like, like yeah. right now, is the, the industry is severely changing, and a lot of the change, of course, is driven technologically in many ways, you know, and, and I think because of the technology that's available to us, Dave, like, for example, if we, you know, imagine if you had to do this film on 16 millimeter. imagine how difficult it would be just from a logistical perspective where, you know, in the digital age, things are much more accessible. You could, you know, grab a bag and quickly do an interview as a one-man band and have something that you can use for years to come. Uh, do you think that's sort of, like people saying like we're in a golden age of documentary in a sense because there's so many of them being made because of the, you know, the streaming services and various things like that. Would you, would you agree? Are we in a golden age of documentary filmmaking? I think so. You can, I mean, it, it's always about distribution, you know, just like alcohol and the prohibition <laughs> or whatever it's like as long as you have a way to to, to get your thing exhibited that's always i think the challenge you can make something 
you know, especially nowadays, whenever you want. You can. I mean, who's releasing their film with an iPhone this week? Soderbergh or somebody like that? <laughs> That's Some, right. Soderbergh is doing an i another iPhone uh, only movie. But but you know. So I mean, documentaries and all the stuff are everywhere. I, I've always felt like with my career in particular. Like, and I think you are too, maybe. We're, I'm like the last of the analog, you know, learn from analog <laughs> guys. Like, literally, yeah. when I left Columbia College in Chicago here, like in the late 80s, we were still cutting on 16. Sure. You know, we were shooting everything on film. There wasn't, you know, there was, a, you know, clunky, you know, uh, VHSC videotape you could run around with these stupid cameras but it wasn't broadcast quality so to speak and it wasn't uh, stuff festivals were accepting and um, I'll never forget like I invested some of my money and I sold my whole movie poster collection to make this movie called Sailor Man right fucking 35 millimeter front to back it was great I thought it was a great picture anxious to get to festivals because it's 35 I, I'm ready but like that was that was the year in festivals where everybody allowed like mini DV so it's like, <laughs> here I come with my great film and, yeah. that cost me a lot of money and time and great talent in it too I had like Mike Newsbaum in it from Chicago yeah. and Ron it's a terrific all these cool people and it's like you know but now I'm like I'm part of that uh, generation of people who there's a film festival gets like 8,000 submissions, you know, and now I'm one of them. And, uh, and even like with this film, it's like, I remember two years ago, people were going, Oh, this is going to be great. What the, the trend at film festivals this year is like, uh, artists, you know, film is about artists and art making. I'm like, great. You know, this is going to be great. Well, now it's like, I feel like the trend at film festivals is like immigration and transgender and other things, you know, about community that yeah. you know, maybe there are people aren't as interested in hearing about people like Joe Frank or Ginger Baker or whoever, you know, that was a couple of years ago that was getting a lot of press. But the point is, you know, uh, I've always feel like, you know, I'm always never quite like in alignment, you know, <laughs> no, no seriousness, uh, like with what the, what the hell's going on. And I don't know if it's because of, you know, me as a producer and, and uh, being such a lone wolf. I mean, you guys help me out with this thing in a lot of different ways. So I don't mean to, I'm not demeaning that, but the point is, not it's at like, all, man. I'm you, not, you, you know, were, you were very lone wolfy on this yeah, thing yeah. in a large sense. I mean, you know, the obviously you always need collaborators. You, you on it literally, you, this is a collaborative medium, right. even like, even if you're pointing a camera directly at yourself. And I mean, short of that, it's, it's a collaborative medium. And, but, but you really, you know, I mean, this, this, this was your show, uh, from the beginning, and, and I mean, you really, you you took the lion's share of responsibility, budget, work. There was the, there was, uh, it's it's truly a T.P. Carlson film, you know. There's no doubt about that. Well, you know, of course, Joe Frank, you know, he let me into his life and is a big part of it. And his wife, Michael Story, kind of helped give me the access to all the stuff. But yeah, just when you get down to the brass tacks of you know the actual, you know. Um, financial process of putting it together and you know assembling it all it is it did kind of fall that's why i want to talk to you you know kind of the nuts and bolts for any of our listeners who don't know like what's the process of getting from okay like you know you've gathered all the footage you can cut it these days you can cut it on your own computer in your house you basically like make a finished film on your own at your home that you know like okay i've got a quick time or dvd or whatever but that's very different from actually getting this thing into festivals so what's the process there? Like, how do we go from, all right, you've got the picture locked, but you know, what do you need to do about music rights, festival rights? What kind of formats does the festival need? Some of that stuff. So. Well, that varies. I think, you know, I think it helps to know somebody more than anything. Yeah. You know, nowadays, in terms of getting it in front of somebody, I actually had a 
producer's rep contacted me yesterday or, or a couple days ago because he discovered the film and you know I'll hear from him and see what's going on but I'm you know I'm always interested in like okay well who can I align myself with that can make my job a lot easier because yeah. you know the process of, of any film is sort of like congratulations you finished it you're halfway done you know, and, and yeah. that's this next half is what you're talking about now. And with that comes like, like yesterday, for example, I ran the DCP and left the facility just high as a kite. And I'm like, yeah, this is fucking great. You know, woo. <laughs> what's, what's DCP for anybody? D, uh, digital cinema uh, projection, package, digital cinema uh -huh. package. And uh, so I'm driving home and, you know, I'm checking my email at the red light, right? And uh, I get rejected by another festival. You know, it's like, yeah. fuck. You know, it's like, and you really wanted to get into that one, you know? It's like, yeah. oh, God. So you got to live with that for like two hours, you know? And then, you know, then you try to find another thing to get you back on the high so you're not on the low. And, um, but, you know, with a film like Joe Frank and other films I've worked on, there's music lights or film, you know, clip rights you have to sort of clear. So um, do you do that on your own? Do you have a lawyer who you work with? Oh, I have, I hired a, um, music supervisor to do that okay. this project was too big because by the time you pay a music supervisor who has all the uh relationships with the studio with the record labels and and a workflow that allows them to do it very effectively it's it's worth every penny you know um and they're able to negotiate down some of these licenses in general you know as you know with music there's two different sides there's a the publishing side and then there's a the master use side so you're always paying like at minimum kind of two licenses for each song and with my picture in particular I think it was down to like 20 some tracks that I had to clear and in general with like a festival thing it's like a thousand dollars per tune you know like 500 aside so uh, part of this Indiegogo campaign is just trying to find the money and have you know people donate to sort of offset that because you know I can nickel and dime you know I, I sit as a producer I save this film you know 100 grand you know, if you were to look at it in a line item and be like, okay, I paid Andre his rate every day, and I paid him his full camera rental every day, and I paid Steve's full and my full, and I didn't yeah. get paid on this film, but if I were to pay myself, you <laughs> yeah. know, and if I wouldn't have neg negotiated all these deals, this film would be $100,000 more. So, uh, but there's a point where, <laughs> you know, uh, it's not show art, it's show business. Right. And uh, so it takes a lot of time. And and uh, to clear that stuff and you know you can always find an investor to take care of that you know but that's you got to find people with expendable income you know at the same time yeah i don't know any of those people dave i uh, I, try. <laughs> I try i try to meet them i try to buddy up with them i try to i've actually i have a lot of friends that i know so to speak who uh who I think have expendable income. And for 10 years, I've just been around them and I've never talked about my movies at all. And now I'm talking about my movies and asking them directly. And it's like, you know, some people have come out and helped me out a little bit and other people I just, I don't hear anything from. So uh, I thought it was gonna get easier when I asked, but uh, it's it's tough. I, I never like asking people for money. That's why, to my point I was saying earlier about being a one-man band, I think if I were to look, look at my career how it's gone in the last 20, 30 years, I almost wish I would have had a producer partner. You know, somebody I met who wanted to F around with all the stuff that deals with show business and not the show art. Oh. Uh, just, just to sort of, not that I don't enjoy doing some of that stuff, but it's tough to do all of it. And yeah. it'd be nice to have somebody else to sort of uh, buddy up with, you know, uh, every day yeah well you, you're actually very good at it I, I mean honestly that part of things has always been a you know a scary you know bear in the woods for me so so I, I almost 
need a producing partner because I, I don't know if I can actually navigate around a lot of the stuff that you manage to navigate. So I would probably just tap you for that job. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, uh, but, but I mean, seriously, it is, it is tricky and it is two sides of the business. There is the art and there's the, the business side of things. And, uh, you know, both really support one another. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, with this film, it's, you know, it was challenging. It took you a long time. I mean, it, it took you a while to finish it, to get the final cut on it. And then on January 15th, Joe Frank passed away. Yeah, I mean, he, he saw the film. He'd seen it over the years, you know, in scenes, and, you know, he crafted it together. But uh, he signed off on the final cut, I think, in uh, October or something of last year, right before he went into the hospital. So he had seen it and liked it and was looking forward to getting it out there. And yeah, as fate would have it, uh, he's not going to be able to see it on the, the big screen. It, it's weird timing for the film, just personally, you know, contractually and all that stuff, the way the film went down, it was my, it's on me to complete it and get it done. And so I did it, you know, since last fall. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of people reflecting on him and his legacy in the, in January and February has sort of helped, I think, steer people towards the film a little bit, yeah, which yeah. is which is fine, you know. Um, so it's the timing feels right, you know, the, to keep celebrating him, you know, as the year. Yeah, I mean, the film is a it's a great tribute to him. But. I mean, you know, as an independent filmmaker, there it's like I don't I, I didn't make any money on this film making it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I went out and did a lot of gigs with you guys doing other things. You know, that I'm a working filmmaker. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the reason I made that Filmmakers in the River movie years ago was because I got tired of people thinking about me as a filmmaker. Is like, why ain't making it till it's at the multiplex? You know, I ain't making it till they see me on Entertainment Tonight. And I wanted to sort of showcase and talk with other film directors about how it's almost like a blue collar thing to some extent, especially the people who stick with it. Yeah. So that's what my career's always been like. You know, it's as I'm raising money or finding the time to work on these films, I'm also trying to feed my family. Of course. I've always thought like I'm I'm in a good position. You know, because at least when I'm out making my money, I'm making films. You know, I'm interviewing people or I'm, you know, maybe it's corporate, maybe yeah. it's, you know, entertainment. Absolutely. You're honing your skill and it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, there's always something going on. And I'd rather be doing that than sitting in some conference room in L.A. jerking off about some, you know, plot point that, you know, everybody's seen a million times in movies. That's some sci-fi film or something. Like, yeah. it sounds sexy, but it's like, what are you doing when you're not doing that? You know, it's like, I'm... I'm a working filmmaker, so it's sometimes these things take a while to do because you know I'm trying to raise money as I go. I'm trying to work on it when I can, and, you know, being patient with the subject matter and getting people in front of the lens, and uh, it all it all adds up. Yeah, well, th this is really one of the challenges of being an independent filmmaker who works out of the, you know, out of the realm of L.A. or out of the realm of New York, for that matter. I mean, we're in a fairly big market, but uh, there's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, all, both Steve and myself are, been, and yourself, I mean, we're in a similar boat in that regard, is that we kind of do have to feed our families while, you know, we're hoping to, to you know, to continue making films and create art and st so on and so forth. It's it's an interesting dynamic, but, but like you were saying, I think it does, in our case, it's kind of interesting because we are, you know, we do make, living of some degree of livelihood, if you can call it that, through making corporate documentaries or whatever the case may be on a daily basis that pays the bills. But because the craft is the same, oh yeah. You know, you're you're extremely sharp. Like like you and I are able to show up at on on virtually any set and you know and basically make a a viable piece out of just about anything. We do that every stinking true. Day. Well, it's funny too, like even when you talk about the different types of work we do, I remember my 
teens, you know, in Chicago, I worked on a lot of music videos because that was a big trend back then. So I was worth, I'd work with these production companies and we'd be doing uh, grunge videos and heavy metal videos and alternative videos and hey, here's Cheap Trick and now we're uh -huh. with these guys and it's all great. And then, you know, and then you move in out of something else and then you're doing like, you know, I'm running around doing a director of photography stuff for like Billy Bob Thornton on, uh, on uh, Bravo Profiles and hey, uh -huh. we're hanging out with Red Ste Rod Steiger and oh my God, I'm following around the Dalai Lama and oh my God, I'm shooting shit with Bill Clinton and he's rubbing his ass in my face. True story. But the point is, and John just, Malkovich, remember that? Right? Yeah, yeah, drunk folk. Yeah, and all that stuff. So it's like, but the point is, it's funny because sometimes that stuff sounds really cool to people, like who aren't filmmakers. But those, the, those are the fucking jobs where you like you're waiting three months for your check. Yeah. You know, it's like, where's my fucking money? You know, yeah. and you're, then you spend all this time chasing down your money as a freelancer. It's just a total drag. But occasionally, you find these corporate clients, like I've gotten older and, and fallen into, and they like pay well, they pay on time, they appreciate your work. There's no creative dilemma, or you know, right? And 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 uh, and it's like, great, thank you. And I'm gonna go home and work on my Joe Frank film. Yeah. Woohoo! And uh, my life is in balance. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't need to be, you know, chasing down my money from BET or you know anybody <laughs> right. else out. There. Don't want to name names. No, I don't want to name names. Uh, Did I say BET? Uh, no, never mind. You meant bad. But uh, just, you know, all this. It's a betting channel. It's a betting channel. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, it's like, you know, being a working filmmaker, it's, 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 it's been great, really. I mean, don't you think you've enjoyed your work? Absolutely. I mean, I love, I love what I do. Even uh, what I do has, uh, you know, ultimately is not going to be seen by a wide array of people or appreciated it for its artistry. Again, you know, for me, in a lot of ways, it's a craft, you know, I mean, I've really been focused more on being a director of photography and working more on the technical end of things. So it's a little bit different for me. I, you know, I mean, I've directed and produced films as well. And I, you know, I, I continue to do so. And I hope to do another one fairly soon. But uh, the you know, for me, the craft aspect of it is something I, I enjoy every day. I really, I mean, I get a little tired of loading on a loading the car in minus 10, <laughs> yeah. 10 degrees, you know, and, and, you know, and wheeling a cart over uh, and, you know, the, the, down the street while the wind is, while the winds in Chicago are yeah. ripping you to shreds. The hawk. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, th that part is, is a little not fun, you know, once you yeah. hit middle age, you know, but... Uh, You're supposed to hire a PA, man. You're supposed to get like a grip. Uh, well, I know. I have grip, several but... PAs, but they, 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 you know, the kids today just don't want to... They don't want to <laughs> <don't wanna> do that. <laughs> they don't want to do that. They just want to do the art part. They don't understand that a lot of it basically involves moving furniture and heavy objects, you know. Yeah. And of course, in our children's minds, we're still a piece of shit. It's like, like <laughs> People the other day, I'm like, oh, I just did this radio interview. You know, you should check it out. They're like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> eh. yeah. This premiere next week's going to be awesome. Yeah, where are we going? Okay. California? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Like, eh. I, I've stopped trying to impress my kids a long time ago. But, uh, but you know, someday th th they still get it. And believe it or not, they brag about you they behind your back to oh. their friends. And their friends think you're the cool dad, whereas their dad is just some dumb lawyer, you know, <laughs> driving around in a friggin'. You know, BMW. Porsche. What are we driving? Porsche SUV. What are we driving in, this by the way? This is a fantastic Honda CRV uh, 2016, right. an excellent car. I have seat warmers, so that's. Is it, that what that is? Really, I thought it was right. my nerves. It's not on. It's not. I turned it off. I had it Sorry. on for part of the just, time. Uh, when but, did it come? Uh, very exciting. It's a very reliable car. It's not a big gas guzzler as I'm just driving around, uh, you know, North recording Brooklyn. recording podcasts. The vehicle so. of choice for the uh, champions of our industry. That's right. For the <laughs> working filmmaker. Well, 
you know, it 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 fits all of my packages perfectly, and uh, and that's and and doesn't seem to ever need any work whatsoever. But uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a weird business, but it's uh, it's it's cool. I think it ruins you. You know, I think we're we're so <laughs> well. Like I don't know. Do you know, mean spiritually, jaded? physically? I'm unclear. <laughs> it, well, physically, definitely, but because it is a physical work, and certainly out of every everybody I know who's not who who does not work in, in the production industry, you know, I do more physical, like sheer physical work than just about anybody, like more than construction guys. Construction guys sit around a lot of time. I don't, you know, yesterday I, I, I didn't sit down for 12 hours. You know, yeah. Went on and on and no, I did sit down to eat about 15 minutes of lunch and they got my order wrong. So that was, uh, you know, that's, that's. I always take that as kind of a, I mean, like, you know, you gotta be careful about your back and things, but I, I have a weird point of pride about that, that I like, that I feel like I may be in better shape than, you know, if I had an office job. Because right. otherwise, like, you almost have to be. Yeah. Like, you know, like you, you yeah. you just be crushed if there's you no, were in a There's no question shape. about it. Yeah. 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 There's no question about it. But it also, but what, when I said it ruins you, I mean, it also ruins you for, like, we, you know, we're independent to a large degree and we're self employed and all that stuff. And as difficult as that is, especially on the financial front, a lot of times, uh, it, it, it does it does make it difficult to take an office job. Yeah. Or take a regular job. Well, I, I think for me, I was, I, I'm, you know, I produce, direct, shoot, edit. I can do sound, all that stuff. So I always try <laughs> to. one man band. Well, I am, but it's yeah. like, but the point is, it's like when I'm. A lot of times I direct and shoot, and then a lot of times I edit, and I love that balance because some mm -hmm. days I'm out running around in the airports doing junk, and then other times I'm just sitting at home, you know, cutting all day. And uh, it's nice to have that mix too. But yeah, man, you gotta you gotta amp up your game. I remember I was interviewing like Michael Mann years ago, and I was it was asked about filmmaker stuff. And I don't know how the hell I got on the subject, but I was talking about physicality and you know, how do you do it? Because at the time, I think he was 50. And he's like, oh, no, I, he's like, I work out. You know, it's like, I got to do this. I got to eat healthy, you know, and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, yeah, welcome to the club now. Yeah, we're all yeah, there. Absolutely. I always say, uh, I got off this a little bit, but I used to say that filmmaking is such a bullshit medium for art. And I didn't mean it like I disliked it, but, you know, just get jealous. If you're a songwriter, you know, like you go and you write a song, and if the song turns out bad, you're like, yeah, well, fuck it, I'll write another song you know or even a painter like you know you might spend a while on a painting but then like okay i'll make another painting but you know like if you you make a film like a lot of times you can't fully tell how good it's going to be until you know you make the whole thing so what's kind of depressing is that you could spend years of your life on a movie and when it's done not even you know for it to be a total tragedy but for you to just look at it and be like yeah <laughs> you know like well, yeah you know, i just I was... made i spent that's the thing it's so hard to like like anything, the best way to become a better filmmaker is to just keep making things. You know, you'll get better as you go along, but unfortunately we're all in love with an art form where it takes a long time and a lot of other people involved to make your thing. Yeah. You know, we can't just get, it's not the same as like, oh, I got a lump of clay and I'm gonna go in my room for five hours and see what happens. Like, nah, we're gonna involve a lot of other people and money and a lot of time and years. And hopefully when it's done, we'll come out with something cool. Well, you know, I, I've, I've always felt like, in terms of that, like, I usually, like, for example, when I mentioned earlier, I want to do a comedy next, and I want it to be a short, and I want to use actors. Like, to me, that seems, like, very easy to do right now. 
like really easy. And like I can knock that shit out in like a weekend, you know, yeah. it, literally. With a like, minimal crew. Oh, absolutely. You yeah. know, I mean, there's other films that I've done. Like I, I take great pride in this film I made years ago between films called Johnny Dodgeball. And what I did is I hired eight kids who are all SAG, I think, or yeah, I think they're all SAG. And they were all, um, it was like a Bad News Bears group of kids. And it was about this kid, Johnny, forming this dodgeball team. And I literally had three shoot days. It was a feature, you know, one day, which is practice number one, day two, which is practice number two. And day three, which was the dodgeball tournament. And it was a pseudo-doc, kind of a Robert Altman thing with a nod to, like, Cartemquin films, early stuff, yeah. like Now We Live on Clifton. And so it was, like, getting inside these kids' heads. And, I, and, and so I had a, a general idea of what I wanted to make, but I was letting them improvise around all of it. So, hell, I made a feature, to my point, in three days, you know, just by creating, you know, uh, an environment where people could make 90 minutes of the right time. Right. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so to me, that's always what's fun about being a filmmaker. You'd always look at it as like, oh, my God, I'm doing a feature and look at all these elements. I have to go to, but well, how are you going to do it? You know, what format are we going to do on? And for that film in particular, you know, sport, it was all about sports photography. So, you know, you could shoot it in digital video with three cameramen who could follow sports, and it was basically a sports documentary. So right. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like you were trying to work outside of uh, the genre, you know, stylistically. Right. Yeah, you you want it to be in the genre in that time in, the, in right. that film as much as possible. But it was interesting that uh, I remember Johnny Dodgeball very very well, but the, because of the mockumentary side of things, you know, it was right. it was kind of like done in the style of a documentary. But but I mean to get back to the actual documentary as a you know as a medium because it's not it's more than a genre, you know, uh, right. musical is a genre, but uh, and but documentary is its own thing. It's its own style of filmmaking, and it's also a a form of film that sort of rose up parallel to narrative filmmaking. You know, from the very beginning, there were guys that used film to capture reality, quote unquote, and guys that used film to tell tales. Right. And, uh, right. Documentary is a, it's it's like a huge area, and it's got many different subgenres with it. You know, within it, you know, there's the the personality piece, the 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 music documentary, the, the I mean, there's so it obviously you, you could think of like 20 of them. But is there a common thread that makes a good documentary, in your opinion? Lately, I, I always think about that film Theremin, a musical odyssey. Mm -hmm. Like oh, I, yeah. I like that film a lot because it's sort of like when it starts, it's almost it's a mystery to me, because it, when you start, it's about this you know musician, and then all of a sudden he becomes like a KGB agent, you know, <laughs> and then he's you know this woman that's around him almost feels like it, it's an it's an occult thing, uh, and so uh, and then in the end you know you find out that there's these two old people that are in love, and it's a love story. And so for me, my favorite documentaries are sometimes ones where they're able to bend that form, you know, your perception of what's going on there, and even like the the newest Wormwood. Errol, yes. Morris, Errol Morris, right? Right. Yeah, that was great. I mean, seeing him reinvent the form kind of just stylistically how he was placing cameras and how many cameras he was using and, and using real actors and stuff like that. I think that stuff always excites me where they're always, you know, bending the form a little bit or, or changing my expectations as I'm watching it. Yeah. Well, he, he's definitely, my, in my opinion, he's the premier documentarian working right now. There's another film on Netflix that actually just won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. That uh, It's called Icarus. And it, it exactly fits into what you were saying because essentially Icarus starts as one kind of film and then takes a sharp left turn and becomes a film about something else altogether that had just just tangentially something to do with what it started out as. And it's very interesting because to me that's that's really 
that, that, that's really a great aspect of what documentary is. If you're a true documentarian, you start with a concept, but you allow that concept to carry you to some kind of greater truth, and you allow the subject matter to kind of guide what you're doing, rather than you trying to shape the subject matter to your, like, those are the kind of documentaries I tend to not like very much. Uh, but. But in the case of Icarus, uh, that the, the, it definitely did that, and and that to me, that that, that level of su the surprise of the real, is is that that to me is the common sort of thread that binds solid documentaries. Well, I think what you said there was cool. Is like you know, for me as a director, I've learned over the years, especially as an interviewer, being a good listener. Like there's a point where you can always show up on, on a set with your stupid questions, you know, I'm gonna, here's the way I'm gonna peel the onion. I'm gonna start here and move through here and go through here and then I'm gonna ask him why, how he feels about that and all that shit. But, you know, really once you get started, it's just listening to people and then working from that thing. And this, I think the same thing for the film, you know, it is very organic. There's a point I always feel with any film that I make where, you know, it's not my film. And in this case, it's not Joe Frank's film, it's the film's film. And it starts to show you at some point in the process what it's going to be, like where its strengths and weaknesses are. And usually you find that stuff in the editing room. You know, at some point you just it starts to determine what you have and have not to what you perceived it was going to be, and it's not going to be that. And it comes out the way it is. And I think allowing for that organic process uh, without fighting it is, is for me, one of the joys of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's really the difference between a, a good documentary filmmaker and a hack. You know, I mean, in all honesty, it, it, it's just like you need to allow that organic process to happen, and I think that's the difference between the two fields. You know, because in a, when you're making a narrative film, there you're trying to keep your vision as tight as possible, whereas with a documentary, you're kind of allowing your vision to expand a little bit and, and bend with the wind and to be fluid with what's happening. And uh, and, and sometimes, it's, I, I think that's why people have difficulty switching from field to field, you know, because, you know, like somebody like Spielberg, I'm sure could make a decent documentary, but, you know, somebody who's that obsessed with the control of everything. I mean, what would a Wes Anderson <laughs> well, I was, you know, somebody said years ago, like, uh, narrative films are easy. And I agree with that. I mean, I think feature films, working on features can be great because, you know, you can work with a couple of great actors and explore stuff. Mm -hmm. And, oh, my God, they're, they're improvising, or I didn't expect that, or this cameraman brought something that stylistically was stunning. Like, all that stuff's wonderful, right? But, you know, it, we're talking about, like, these are the scenes you need to get today, and then these scenes, then these scenes, and then we're done. You know, the documentary, to, to your point we're, we're talking about, is like sometimes they start to evolve in ways that you can't control, you know, and so you have to, and, and um, the storytelling can be very complicated. I mean, I, I take great pride in connecting my dots in my films, you know. I like when somebody picks up on somebody else's thought or Joe's radio show kicks in and expands on this theme and then we come out of that theme. And that stuff takes, I think, a little bit of skill. It, it, it literally isn't me saying, okay, this, this show that Joe Frank's talking about is about the Holocaust, so I'm going to interview somebody about the Holocaust. I'm going to make sure at the end of this radio drop I'm going to use, I'm going to have somebody else pick up Holocaust and, and talk about that. Because that's your point, is this right. dry stuff you could do all mm -hmm. day long. But the trick is to sort of just find that stuff organically. So as people are watching it, much like Joe's radio shows, you sort of start listening in the car. You can't let it go. It goes on, in a, in a, and you won't get out of the car like we're in right now until, until it's over. Right. You know, because uh, you've been taken on a journey. Yeah. 
and he'll bring it all around to you. And your film has that quality too. Like your film is is uh, is very connected to the way Joe structures his narratives as well. And that's one of the fun things of it. But but I mean to sort of get back to the structural things of it. Like it took you a while to land in the structure where you're at now. I mean you 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 had a couple of edits that were vastly different. You didn't just recreate little things. I mean it was like you really rearranged stuff as things moved along, as you know, as as Joe's situations change and so on and so forth and that's you know and 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 that's a lot of work you know that that is that is uh that's an enormous amount of patience and uh, courage because it is like your time your lifetime that you're investing in this process it's not easy it's not no. for everybody uh but uh but the people that it's for it's definitely it's definitely a labor of love and and you you could tell with with your film, I mean, it's it really it really is a labor of love. Um, congratulations! I, I think I mean you have a wonderful film on your hands, and you know I hope it uh, kicks all kinds of ass well, all over the place. We all do. I mean, you said before, you know, it's like your stuff doesn't get on the big screen, but it does. You know, both of you guys worked on it. You know, there's right. a lot of people around it, so we can all celebrate it as it's as it's getting in front of an audience. I'm I'm excited about standing in the back of the theater a week from today for the first time and uh, yeah. and and feeling it, you know, because I, I know all the cuts, so it's like, you know, I, to me it's hard to enjoy it. You know, I enjoy it, but it's like it's hard to see it fre with fresh eyes, obviously. So um, it'll be fun to, to watch all the audience participate in it. Yeah. That'll, that'll, be, that'll be fresh for me. I think that'll be, a, yeah, I'd love to see it with a crowd of, like, Joe Frank fans. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and but it's also exciting, the notion of the film having people discover Joe Frank, and, you know, and, and we all, you know, re admire him greatly as an artist, obviously, and, and but, but you, you know, there's a certain degree of ownership that you take with, with like, cult artists, right? Like, you want them to be yours. You don't sure. want to share them with the world. Right. And that was the thing with Joe for many years. There was a cult of Joe Frank. You'd meet somebody, you're like, hey, you know Joe Frank? That's pretty cool. You know, it's, it's sort of like this undercover thing. And now you're, you really want to expand this cult as much as possible. And there's a little bit of a mixed feelings. I, I mean, you, <laughs> at least for me, like, you want more people to be aware of the, how great this guy is and how brilliant and influential he is but on the other hand you love the cult aspect of it I don't think it'll change with this film to be honest I mean Mike Malone this writer I talked about he's in the movie he has a great line towards the end where he says like you know there'll always be like a Joe Frank Island and you can return to the island and visit the island but you know maybe maybe not be for everybody but I doubt that it's going to be the Joe Frank continent or the Joe Frank world it'll just be, always be an island you know, and you want to get out to a wider audience and hope more people see it. But, you know, there's so much stuff out there for people to, to be watching. There is. There is. There is an actual, you know, to to use your geographical analogy that you just brought in. I mean, there is literally a friggin' ocean of documentaries out there. In fact, there was some, I, I was watching some comedy show yesterday on Netflix that where they were literally mocking how many documentaries are on Netflix. And it was a Netflix show that was doing it. They were literally just... <laughs> openly making fun of the fact like it's a known fact that uh, Netflix p puts out 56 documentaries a day <laughs> <laughs> you know and it seems like they this is really uh, harshing our congratulations buzz here Andre I know. really well, <laughs> no, no, no 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 I don't care yeah so it's, it's part of the part of the deal you know yeah. I, I believe me I don't have any you know illusions that the film is going to be great or bad or anything it's done you know it'll get out there i'll run it for a year if somebody wants to pick it up and show it to more people fantastic the worst that i'm gonna have is you know joe frank fans bother me the best of my life saying when's this film gonna come out there when can i see it and if the, if i can get it to them and distribute it in a certain way i will 
you know, if they can pay for it, or if, if not, it'll just be, you know, it'll remain a cult film or something, you know. Yeah. And, I, and I'll be moving on to my comedies. There's some other things that I'm that I'm working on. That's right. Know. That's right. You, you can't. You can never stop. You got to be like a shark. Uh, there, there's no way of stopping. But the film is great. And uh, tell us about more uh, about the Indiegogo campaign. Well, the campaign is running right now, and basically, you know, uh, just. Go to Indiegogo, find Joe Frank, or, or go to my website, which is joefrankmovie.com, and you can, you know, get access to all that stuff. There's, if you get to the campaign, you'll just see how, you know, if you buy a perk or help out or whatever, uh, it all goes to sort of music licensing, get it over the hump, it'll get it out in the festivals for a year. I think more importantly, if there's any film festival people out there who want to show this or people who know people, track me down through the website, let me know you want to show it, would love to bring the film to your city. You know, because that's the goal over the next year is just to get it out in the theaters, you know, in these festival theaters to as, to as many people as possible. It's a terrific film. Everybody should see it. Joe Frank, somewhere out there. Dave, thank you. Yeah, thanks. For being our first ever, but hopefully not last ever guest. But th th this was a lot of fun. Uh, you, you should join us to, ta to talk about uh, films uh, we haven't actually worked on one of these days, just, <laughs> just, to, just to mix it up. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course, you get to sit in this uh, beautiful Honda CRV here with uh, butt warmers. I'm just, That's right. I'm just wondering if, if people have, uh, are still listening to the show if they, or if they've gotten out of their car. <laughs> They're home sleeping already, man. <laughs> the gimmick is we're driving, Dave. The audience doesn't have to drive. They can be wherever. We do their driving for them. That's, That's right. The, the, well, we, we, it's a reverse Joe Frank experience. Well, thank you for the ride. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. And I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Askin. See you next time.